Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right. Well, maybe you're new to Emmanuel, or maybe you've been coming here for many, many years, and you wonder, why do we do the things we do as a church? This is the first Sunday of the month, and every first Sunday, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And you may think, well, what is the Lord's Supper? Why do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? What's it all about? Maybe you've come here and you've thought about baptism, or maybe you've seen a baptism, or maybe you've never been baptized, and you ask questions, well, why do we dunk people under the water? And so I thought we'd take a break this morning from Galatians and just stop, because there's so many new people coming to Emmanuel. There's so many people on different um, aspects of their journey with Christ. I thought it would be helpful today just to stop and say, why does the church sometimes do the things that the church does? And so we're going to look this morning at the two ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, sometimes these have been called sacraments, which is a little bit confusing because some faith traditions believe that by taking of the Lord's Supper, you actually get saved, or by being baptized, you actually get saved. So as Baptists, we don't use the word sacraments per se. The wording that we use is an ordinance. That's a weird word, an ordinance. And the reason we call it an ordinance is because these were ordained by Jesus. These were ordered by Jesus. These were commanded by Jesus. Jesus. Now, let's think about this for a moment. Why are they called ordinances? Well, first of all, Jesus commands us to practice them in the Gospels. When you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus is commanding us to practice these. Secondly, you see the early church in the book of Acts actually practicing what Jesus commanded. And also, you see in the rest of the writings of the New Testament, the practice of baptism and the Lord's Supper as well. So let's first of all explore baptism. And so here's how our church, Emmanuel Baptist Church, how we understand the scriptures this morning. Now, let me just say there's a lot of people from different backgrounds that that look at these things differently, and we want to respect that. What I'm sharing with you is how does Emmanuel view this? How do we believe this based upon the scriptures? And so let's first of all explore baptism. And, and we get some clear teachings from the Bible about baptism. One of the first things you understand is that Jesus himself was baptized. Jesus himself was baptized. In Mark chapter 1, 9 through 11, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan River. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So Jesus himself was baptized. But also, Jesus commanded us to baptize new believers. So if you've got your Bible open to Matthew chapter 28... This is famously called the Great Commission. These are some of the last words of Jesus to the church, to us as his followers, on what we're supposed to be about doing. 
So let's start in verse 18, actually. Matthew 28, 18. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And here's the commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. How do you do that? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus commands us to go make disciples and to baptize those who've trusted Christ for salvation. So not only was Jesus himself baptized, but he commands us to baptize. Now, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Acts because you will also see, let's turn to the book of Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, you will also see that the early church, the early church in the book of Acts, faithfully practiced baptism. As a matter of fact, it's all through the book of Acts. In the very beginning of the book of Acts, Peter stands up, preaches the first Christian sermon at Pentecost. 3,000 people are saved. And let's read what happens in Acts 2, 41. Acts 2, 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people got saved, and then they were baptized. Okay, let's go to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, verse 35. Philip is witnessing to the Ethiopian eunuch about the gospel. The Ethiopian eunuch is reading from the Old Testament. He doesn't understand what he's reading. Philip goes and shares the gospel with him. Let's pick up in Acts chapter 8, verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they had come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Okay, so the... 3,000 people were saved, they're baptized, the, Philly, the, the, the Ethiopian eunuch was, was saved, then he was baptized. Let's go to one other place in Acts, Acts chapter 16. This is Paul and Silas are in the Philippian jail, and if you remember, the angel comes in and miraculously lets them all escape, and the jailer's afraid. Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 30, Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 30. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And he said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all those who were with him in his house. And he took them in that same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and his family. So you see the pattern. I could go on and on in the book of Acts. The gospel goes forth. Someone receives the gospel. They are baptized. Whether it's 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost, whether it's the Ethiopian eunuch with Philip, whether it's the Philippian jailer, they are baptized. 
So what I want to do this morning is explore a little bit more deeply what baptism is. So this morning, what I want to do, we're going to look at baptism, we're going to look at the Lord's Supper, both of these ordinances of the church. Let's look at five aspects of baptism. These may be things that you've heard your entire life. These may be brand new. But like I said, it's important for us to stop and say, why do we do the things we do as a church? And maybe these are new to you. Maybe, maybe God will speak to you through these. So first of all, baptism is the immersion of a believer in the water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, why do I say immersion? The Greek word baptize is the Greek word baptizo. That's where we get the word baptize, baptizo. And that word means to plunge, to dunk, to submerge under the water. That's what the actual Greek word means. And so as Baptists, why do we baptize under the water? Because that's the way that Jesus was baptized under the water. That's what the word means in the original language. We just read it earlier in, in Mark 1 verse 10. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending him on like a dove. When Jesus came up out of the water, he was baptized under the water. Same thing with the Ethiopian. Eunuch, Acts 8, 39, we just saw this, when they came up out of the water. So baptism is this, I like to say it, initiating oath. It's the initiation oath sign. It's the outward sign that you are formally submitting yourself to the Holy Trinity. You are saying, as an act of submission, as an act of obedience, I have been saved, and I'm submitting myself to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit by being obedient to baptism. So really, it's the first act of obedience. When you look in the book of Acts, when they trusted Christ, they were immediately baptized as an act of obedience to the Lord. So once you've repented of your sins and you've trusted in Christ, you follow Jesus' example of being baptized. You follow the command of Jesus to be baptized. And you follow the practice of the early church, which baptized new believers. And so here's my question for you. If Jesus was baptized himself and Jesus commands baptism, why would you not be baptized if you have indeed trusted Christ for salvation why would you not be like the Ethiopian eunuch that says what holds me back what prevents me from being baptized if you're here today and you have trusted Christ for salvation you've believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ you've trusted him then what prevents you from being baptized so I would ask you to after the service, maybe come up and talk to me. If you're a youth, talk to Pastor Andrew. Set up an appointment with me. We'd love to talk to you about what it means to be baptized. Now, second, baptism is a public profession of repentance and faith. Now, baptism doesn't save anybody. You're not saved by being baptized. What you do in baptism is you verbally and you visually show what God has done in your life. Now, some faith traditions believe that when you are actually baptized, it saves you. 
we've been looking at the book of Galatians for, for, for many weeks now. And, and what is salvation? Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. There's no circumcision added. There's no dietary kosher laws added. There's no baptism added. There's nothing added onto salvation by grace alone. So baptism does not save you. Jesus saves you by grace alone. But yet, what you do see is that baptism is a public way to let people know what's happened to you. In other words, there's no James Bond Christians. There's no secret agent Christians. If you are a Christian, if you say, I'm a Christian, the way the Bible ordains you to make it public is in the waters of baptism to let everybody know what has happened to you. I want you to think about it this way. When you got married, if you're married here this morning, whether you stood in a church or you stood before justice of a peace, whatever it was, when you got married, you exchanged vows, the I do's. And the exchanging of vows is what makes you married. But what did you give as a token of your love to your spouse on that wedding day? A ring, right? The ring is an outward token or symbol of the marriage. You exchanged rings. And what do you do? You wear your wedding ring as a way to let everybody know, I am married. Now, I wasn't at half of your weddings, was I? But I know you're married because you tell me you're married, but I can look at your hand and see you're married because you have a a ring. The ring doesn't make you married. Being married makes you married. (laughs) The ring is an outward sign that you are married. Okay, it's like baptism. Baptism doesn't make you saved. Jesus makes you saved. But baptism is an outward sign to let everybody know that you're saved. It's like wearing a wedding ring. It's it's going public with your faith so that people know that you truly are a believer in Christ. Let's look at the third aspect. Third, baptism is an act of obedience symbolizing The believer's faith in a crucified, buried, and risen Savior. Now, I want you to think about the symbolism that happens in the waters of baptism. When you stand in the waters of baptism, you are symbolizing Jesus' death on the cross. When you go under the waters of baptism, you're symbolizing Jesus' burial in the tomb. When you come up out of the water... You are symbolizing Jesus coming up out of the grave. So baptism is a symbol of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And when you stand in the waters, you're saying, I believe that. I wholeheartedly believe that Jesus died on the cross, was buried, and he rose again. And you're identifying with that reality, saying, I believe that to be true. Romans 6, 3-4 says this. Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. A picture of dying to your old self, being raised to walk in newness of life. It's a picture of what happened to Jesus. Not only Jesus dying and being buried and raised again, but what happened to you. Your old life was buried and dead, and you've raised to be a new person in Christ. Colossians 2.12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, 
and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So baptism is a symbol of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and it's also a symbol of the death, burial, and resurrection of your old life. Your old life died, and you've been raised to walk in newness of life. So baptism is immersion in the water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is a public profession of your repentance and faith. It is a symbol of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But number four, being a church ordinance, it is a prerequisite for the privileges of church membership. This is Emmanuel's doctrine. This is our our doctrine as a church. If you are going to be a member of Emmanuel Baptist Church, we would ask you that you need to be baptized. Now, to baptize a new believer is to add them to the church family. Let's go back and read Acts 2.41 again. I'll just have it up on the screen. Those who received the word were baptized, and they were added that day, added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, it's interesting what Luke, the author of Acts, says here. He simply could have stated they were baptized. But notice what he says. They were baptized, and there were added that day, and he gives a number, 3,000 souls. Added to what? What were the people added to? Well, before those people were saved, before those people got baptized, they weren't part of the church. They weren't part of God's people. Once they believed and once they were baptized, they were added to the church family. So baptism is a way of adding you into the local church. And so we're not trying to be legalistic by saying you got to be baptized, jump through this hoop to, to be a member of the church. We're just saying we're not asking you to do anything Jesus himself wouldn't ask you to do. If Jesus commands it, if Jesus was baptized himself, if the early church practiced it, then, then why wouldn't you, if you're a follower of Christ, be baptized out of obedience to Jesus? Okay? Well, here's another thing you need to think about. Go look in the book of Acts. You will never find a non-baptized believer in the book of Acts. If anybody professed faith in Christ, they were baptized. So you don't have any non-baptized believer in the book of Acts. So everybody that claimed to be a believer that's in the Bible in the New Testament had been baptized after they were saved. Here's a fifth thing about baptism. Since baptism points to the beginning of the Christian life and displays a commitment to turn from sin and trust in Christ, we do not baptize infants. I, I get this question a lot. Um, can you baptize our infant? Uh, we, we don't do this for a couple of reasons. Number one, we don't see any biblical evidence of, of babies being baptized in the Bible. Number two, baptism is a, is a personal decision that comes when you've trusted Christ for salvation, and so a baby's not able to make that personal decision. So uh, at that time and that point where you've made the decision, not your parents, and it comes after you've trusted Christ for salvation, then you're baptized, okay? So um, we dedicate children, to the Lord, but it's different than, than baptizing just because we don't ever see in the Bible a baby being baptized. It's always somebody who's already professed faith in Christ. They consciously know what they're doing, and then they are baptized as an act of obedience after salvation. So again, if you've never been baptized, and you do trust Jesus, and you, you, you know you believe in Jesus, 
you've trusted him for salvation, but you've never followed him in believer's baptism, I encourage you to come talk to me. Maybe you've just thought about it. Maybe you've never thought about it. Maybe, maybe you're, you're starting to get a stirring in your soul that this is something I need to do because of what the Bible says. We'd love to talk with you um, after the service or make an appointment with us on baptism. Now let's talk about the Lord's Supper. So baptism is a one-time, unrepeatable, outward sign of dunking a person in the water that basically incorporates them into the life of a local church publicly. It's a one-time thing. You're not baptized multiple times. Lord's Supper, on the other hand, is an ongoing celebration. It's something to be celebrated ongoingly. We do it once a month. Some churches do it every week. Some churches do it once a quarter. The Bible doesn't tell you how often to do it. Jesus says, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. So it's the continuing fellowship where we remember the Lord's death and renew our commitment to Christ. So let me give you four aspects of the Lord's Supper. Maybe you've never thought about this before. Here's the first. The Lord's Supper is a transformation of the Passover. What was the Passover? The Passover was the Old Testament meal that the Israelites ate in Egyptian bondage where they were to go kill a spotless lamb. They were to put the blood on the doorpost of their house and they were to eat that lamb as a way to remember God's salvation of them from Egyptians. Exodus 12, 24 through 27. You shall observe this rite, the Passover, as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads in worship. So kids come along and say, why are we doing this? We're doing this because of what God did in saving us from the Egyptians. Okay. Jesus, on that last night when he was, we call it the Last Supper, but actually it was a Passover meal. Jesus was celebrating Passover, and he transforms the Passover and creates the Lord's Supper in the New Covenant. Matthew chapter 26, 26 through 28. Now as they were eating, what were they eating? They were eating the Passover meal. Jesus took bread, the matzah bread that represented uh, his body. Took the bread, after blessing it, broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So when Jesus took the body, or took the, took the bread, and took the cup of the Passover, he was transforming the Passover meal into the Lord's Supper in the New Covenant, memorializing his body and his blood. Not the Passover lamb in the Old Testament, but Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb. So it's a transformation of the Passover. But secondly, in the Lord's Supper, we both symbolize and remember the death of Christ. We both symbolize and remember the death of Christ. So turn to 1 Corinthians for a moment. We're going to hang out in 1 Corinthians for a while, chapter 11. This is probably the most extensive teaching on the Lord's Supper in Paul's writings. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 
1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, we just read about this in Matthew, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So, do this in remembrance of me. We're remembering Jesus, and we're symbolizing Jesus. Jesus is not literally saying that the wafers and the drink literally become the body of Christ, literally become the blood of Christ. We do not believe that they literally become the elements of, the elements literally become part of Jesus' flesh and blood. We believe he's talking metaphorically, he's talking symbolically about that, that it's a symbol of what he has done. So in the Lord's Supper, when we're doing it, we're doing it in remembrance of him, we're looking back. Okay, we're looking back. So when we take the Lord's Supper, we're looking back at the cross, at what Jesus did, and we're remembering what he did for us there. We're remembering the blood shed and the body broken for us. We're remembering that. That's why he says, do this in remembrance of me. So it's a, it's a symbolic and a memorial where we look back to what Jesus did for us. But here's the third, and this is the one I think most Baptists have a hard time understanding, but it's historically been the Baptist view, though sometimes we don't talk about it. Third, in the Lord's Supper, we picture the spiritual nourishment that Christ gives to our souls right now. Yes, there's an element to the Lord's Supper where we look back. We look back to what he did. We remember what he did. But there's, an, there, there's a sense in which in the actual partaking of the Lord's Supper, Jesus is there spiritually nourishing us in the Lord's Supper. This has historically been the Reformed Baptist stance on this, that the Lord's Supper is a means of grace whereby Jesus ministers to our souls through the Holy Spirit spiritually in the partaking of the Lord's Supper, whereby we receive the benefits won for us on the cross. And so what I'm saying is this. As Baptists, we believe it's a memorial. Yes, we believe it's a symbol, but it's more than that. It doesn't literally become the body and blood of Christ, but there is a spiritual nature to the Lord's Supper where Jesus, who's at the right hand of the Father, is ministering to us through the Holy Spirit in the taking of the Lord's Supper right here and now where we spiritually receive benefits in the taking of the Lord's Supper, spiritually. Now, how do I get that? Where do we historically get that? We'll turn over one chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Because Paul is going to be very explicit in this teaching of the spiritual aspect of the Lord's Supper in the here and now. It's more than just a memorial. Yes, we remember Jesus. Yes, we look back to what he did. But there's something special about taking it where we get ministered to in the here and now. It's historically been called the real presence of Christ in the Supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16 and 17. Verse 16 
vertical relationship with God. Verse 17, horizontal, horizontal relationship with each other. We'll talk about both of those. But look at verse 16. 1 Corinthians 10, 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The ESV has the word participation. It's the Greek word koinonia. The ESV and the NIV translate it participation. The New American Standard has sharing. And if you have a King James or New King James, it's got the word communion. That's where we get the word communion. It's a very special word that Paul uses there. Paul is not saying only that when we take the Lord's Supper, we're doing it together as a fellowship. Yes. But the way he uses that word is something special and spiritual happens in the taking of the Lord's Supper, where when we take the Lord's Supper, we are spiritually connecting with Jesus on a very deep level. And here's the issue. The verb is in the present tense. It's the present tense. Is it not a participation? It's not something that we look back at what happened. Yes, we do. We do this in remembrance. But he's saying right now in the presence, when you eat that bread, when you drink that cup, you are communing with Jesus in a very special way. It's a means of grace to give you the benefits won for him on the cross. Now, it doesn't save you. We're not saying that when you take the elements, it saves you. Don't, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that there is something spiritual that happens in the taking of that to those of us who are already saved that ministers to our souls. And Charles Spurgeon said this. It's been the Baptist view all throughout history. Charles Spurgeon said, At the table, Jesus feeds us with his body and blood. It's not a saving grace. It's a sanctifying grace. Now think about what we talked about last week in Galatians chapter 3. What was their problem? They forgot the gospel. They forgot that they got into the gospel by grace, and they forgot that they continue in the gospel by grace. They forgot the role of the Holy Spirit in saving them. They forgot the role of the Holy Spirit in keeping them saved. Let me just share with you, what is one of the primary ways the Holy Spirit grows you in your faith? You may never have thought about this before. You may think, well, it's preaching, it's listening to Bible studies, it's, it's singing. Yes, yes, and yes, but one of the primary ways Jesus continues to strengthen you is through the taking of the Lord's Supper. It is a way to sustain you by grace. You're not saved in it, but something special happens in it that gives you sustaining grace. I want you to think about something for a moment. Have you ever thought about why the Lord's Supper involves eating? I mean, Jesus could have very easily said, okay, when you celebrate my death, everybody get out a pad and paper and draw it. Do this in remembrance of me. Draw a picture. He could have said, okay, when we're going to celebrate my death, we're going to show the Jesus video, watch it on the screen. Or he could have even said, when we're going to talk about my death, listen to the pastor, preach it. And there's nothing wrong with those things. But what does Jesus tell us? It's something that we eat. Now, it's not a huge meal. It's a wafer and a, and, a, and a little cup. But it involves taking something into your mouth and swallowing it. 
to taste and see that the Lord is good. What did Jesus say in John 6.35? Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Again, metaphorically speaking, I am the bread. Now, John 6, 53-57 is a little bit confusing. I don't think Jesus here is talking about the Lord's Supper. I don't think he's talking about communion here, but I think the principle holds. Listen to John 6, 53-57. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food... And my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. I don't think Jesus is talking about the literal Lord's Supper where, you know, when you take the elements, you're literally feeding on Jesus' flesh, and you're literally drinking his blood. But I think the principle stands. What's the metaphor depict? Jesus is saying, when you come to me, it's as if you're taking all of me into yourself, and I'm the bread of life, and I sustain you, and I hold you, and I keep you, and I give you life. And so when you're taking the Lord's Supper, Jesus is physically present here today through the Holy Spirit ministering to our souls as we take it into our bodies, and we're reminded of Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Let me challenge your thinking for a moment. Nobody here, after the service, or whatever service you go to and you heard preaching, nobody would have a problem with somebody saying this, man, that message really fed me today. I was really fed by the preaching. That preaching was nourishment for my soul. Nobody would have a problem with that, would you? If you said something like that. But how are you receiving a message? Through your ears. Why would we not say the same thing about something we receive through our mouths? Celebrating the Lord's Supper today nourished my soul today. It fed me today. I communed with the Lord today. Not only was I fed through the preaching of the word through my ears, but I was also fed through the taking of the Lord's Supper into my body, which reminded me that I need Jesus for my sustenance. I need him as my Lord and Savior. So sometimes Baptists can get a little nervous about this real presence of Christ in the supper because we're so concerned to keep it as a memorial. And yes, it is a memorial, but it's more than that. There is something spiritual that happens in the taking of the Lord's Supper where Jesus actually presently ministers to our souls. Here's the fourth thing. The Lord's Supper is celebrated together as a unified church family as we share in the benefits of Christ's death. It's to be shared together. Now, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10, 16, that's the vertical. The cup of blessing that we bless is not that a koinonia, a communion, a participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break, is that not a koinonia, a fellowship, a sharing in the, blood, in the body of Christ? Okay, that's the vertical aspect. Look at verse 17. Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. You've all come in here as different people. You're all different. We're all different. But when we come into this place, we're one. We're unified. We're a church family. So you don't really take the Lord's Supper at your house as a private affair by yourself. It's, it's to be taken as the church, 
as brothers and sisters in Christ, as the body where we've covenanted together as a church family saying, I'm taking this meal together. Not only am I communing vertically with my heavenly father, not only am I communing with Jesus, but I'm also having fellowship with my brothers and sisters in Christ who I call my brothers and sisters, who I call my, my church family. So let me address an issue. Who should partake of the Lord's Supper? This is kind of controversial. Who's supposed to take it? Well, first of all, only those who are Christians take it. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you should not take the Lord's Supper. It's not my rules, it's Jesus' rules. So when the elements are passed in just a few moments, instead of receiving the elements, instead of taking the elements, we would say, don't take the elements if you've not taken Jesus first. Take Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Trust in Jesus, and then you'll understand why you can take that afterwards. But this is secondary to taking Jesus. So first of all, you've got to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior first. All right, let's talk about how baptism relates to Lord's Supper, because this can be a little bit controversial. Historic, this is church history. This is Old Testament. This is New Testament. Baptism is the one-time initiating oath sign that sets you apart as a Christian. How do, the, how do you know you're a Christian? The Bible says the way you know you're a Christian is the public profession of baptism, that one-time thing that you do. What's the ongoing meal that you eat that shows that you're also a Christian? It is the Lord's Supper. Now, in the Old Testament, you see a picture of how these work together. Okay? In Exodus 12, 48, If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. Okay, what's the rule in the Old Testament? In order to take the Passover, you first had to be circumcised. If you were not circumcised, you could not eat the Lord's Supper. How many times are you circumcised? Once. How many times do you celebrate the Passover? Multiple times. So scholars have made this argument. If that's the picture of the Old Testament, circumcision, then Passover, they would say, if you carry that into the New Testament, baptism first, and then Lord's Supper. In other words, what historically has been the view of the church, regardless of what denomination you go to, all denominations, Roman Catholic, Lutheran, Methodist, Presbyterian, Baptist, all denominations have pretty much the standard rule that you cannot participate in the Lord's Supper unless you're first baptized. Now, the question's over mode. Is it an infant baptism? Is it a believer's baptism? That's really the argument. The argument's not whether you have to be baptized in order to take the Lord's Supper. The question is, what's the mode? But all denominations require baptism before Lord's Supper because they see that in the Scriptures. Now, I'm not going to be dogmatic on this. I will tell you my personal theology. I will tell you there's a disagreement among, among our elders on this. So I can't be dogmatic. My personal theology, and I'm not, not going to police this or be dogmatic or, or be legalistic about it. I'm just, you need to know where my personal theology is. My personal theology is I believe you really need to be baptized before you take the Lord's Supper. Because you don't see any unbaptized person in the Bible. The question of mode becomes the question, okay, were you infant baptized? Was a believer baptized? So that's my preference. Ultimately, it's between you and the Lord how that works, but I just want to challenge you again to think about that. 
There's also some other things related to the Lord's Supper. Look at chapter 11, and let's look at verses 27 and 29. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body. Now, I don't think Paul bears talking about not understanding the symbolism of the body and the blood. The, the Corinthians understood that. What Paul is saying here, when you take the Lord's Supper and you're not discerning the body, he's talking about the church body. You're taking the Lord's Supper in a way that you're not understanding the unity, the, the, the interdependence, the fellowship we have as a church family because they were being selfish, they were cutting each other out, they were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, they were treating each other in terrible ways. And so when you take the Lord's Supper, you are to take the Lord's Supper discerning the body of Christ around you. And it also says to examine yourselves. Look right there. Verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink the cup. I can't examine you. The elders can't examine you. We are table setters. We set the table. We pass the plates. You've got to examine yourself. Now, what do you examine yourself for to see if you're a worthy taker? Do you have any unrepentant sin in your life that you need to confess? It would probably be a very good idea before those elements are passed by for you to confess unrepentant sin in your life and examine yourself. Do you have bitterness or anger or unforgiveness towards another believer in this body? That's really the issue. If you've got unforgiveness, if you've got a grudge, if you've got something against another believer, you should not take the Lord's Supper until you make it right. What does Jesus say in Matthew 5, 23 through 24? If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. And that's talking about a little different concept, but I think it's the same thing. If this is a family meal where you are to discern the body of Christ and there's a disruption in the body of Christ, then you should examine yourself to see whether you should take the supper if you've got relationships that aren't in unison. Ultimately, it's between you and the Lord. You've got to examine yourself to see if you should take it. And I don't think there's anything wrong. Nobody's going to look at you badly if the elements come by and you don't take it, sometimes we're afraid everybody's looking at me and if I don't take it, da, da, da. If you aren't at a point where you can examine yourself and say, I really can't take the Lord's Supper today, I hope nobody in this room would judge you for letting it pass on by. Better to let it pass on by this time and make things right with God. It's always going to come around next week or next month, so you'll have another opportunity to take it. Here's another question. This is a thorny issue too that I think I need to address. What about your kids? Should unbaptized children take the Lord's Supper? We don't really like this idea because, again, it confuses the ordinance. It confuses the order. 
what you're doing is you're sending a confusing message to your child. You're saying, you can partake of the ongoing meal, but you haven't done what gets you into the Christian family, baptism. So it kind of, like, why can, I, why can I take the Lord's Supper, uh, but, I, but I haven't been baptized? It confuses that. Let me also ask you a question, parents. Is your child old enough to examine themselves to see if they're taking it in a worthy manner? If they're old enough to examine themselves and understand it and take it in a worthy manner, they're probably old enough to be baptized. So why aren't they? Maybe you need to come and make an appointment with me to talk to your child about being baptized. I think it sends a confusing message. You're telling a child, you can participate in the ongoing meal that says you're a Christian, but yet you haven't done the one thing that tells everybody you're a Christian. Baptism. It reverses the order. Now, Let's get back to the spiritual aspect of this. John Calvin made an interesting statement about the Lord's Supper. He says this, Christ is the only food for our soul, and therefore our Heavenly Father invites us to Him that refreshed by communion with Christ, we may experience new strength and grace until we reach heaven. The Lord's Supper is like no other experience you will ever experience as a Christian. It's different than prayer. It's different than singing. It's even different than listening to a sermon being preached. It's different than watching the Jesus film. There's something special in the Lord's table where you are participating with his death You are receiving nourishment for your soul. The Holy Spirit's ministering to you, and you're doing it as a church family together. It's an opportunity for all of us to publicly proclaim our need for Jesus. When you take the Lord's Supper, what you're reminding yourself every time you take it is, I need Jesus every day. I need Jesus. And what do we do? when we take the Lord's Supper? Okay, so we we commune with Christ, we remember his death, we share it together, we proclaim his death until he comes. Look at verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 11. You didn't know you were going to come today and preach a sermon, did you? But we preach a sermon when we take the Lord's Supper. What does it say? For as often as you eat this cup, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We are taking the Lord's Supper, and when we take the Lord's Supper, we're saying, we are waiting for Jesus Christ to come back. Now, wait just a moment. What happens when Jesus comes back? Revelation 19.9. He said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said, these are the true words of God. Marriage supper of the Lamb. We've been invited to the Lord's Supper today. It's going to be an act of worship, an act of joy. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to remember what Jesus did. We're going to commune with Jesus right now. And we look forward to that day when we're going to be in the very presence of Jesus, not having symbols, but eating with him at the very marriage supper of the Lamb. 
It's no longer going to be a memorial. It's going to be Jesus there with us. And all the redeemed of all the ages around this huge table. I don't know how big that table is. It's got to be a huge table. The marriage supper of the Lamb. So as we take the Lord's Supper today, let it be a foretaste of the joy we await on that day when we eat the marriage supper of the Lamb with Jesus. So let me ask you to bow your heads as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper this morning. This morning, and we want to truly understand these words of Paul that when we eat the bread, we are participating in your body, and when we drink the cup, we are participating in your blood. And so, Lord, minister to our souls in a very special way this morning that we might receive encouragement, we might receive sustaining grace, we might truly know the presence of Christ in this place this morning. Thank you for your body being broken. Thank you for your blood being shed. We want to do this in remembrance of you this morning, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray.